Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Many standing, will you please pray with me? Father, you promised that you would send us your Holy Spirit and that your Spirit would lead us into all truth. So we ask for your help now. As we open up the pages of your scriptures, may we see Jesus in them. May we be transformed to become like Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see all of you this morning. If I've not met you yet, my name is Patrick Schlabs, I'm one of the pastors here, and I hope to get a chance to greet you after the service. But before that time comes, it pains me to remind you that appearances can be deceiving. From the silly reminders that we all got at the beginning of the pandemic with those videos that showed a tire or a Coke can or a Doritos bag that when they were cut into were just cake. You remember that? There were lots of them going around and March of 2020, um, as we were all locked in our rooms. Um, So that's a silly example. But there are also the frustrating examples, right? Whenever you uh, make a purchase on a home or a car or some other item that you are excited about, only to find out that it's broken. It's a lemon. This happens, uh, to be honest to me, way too much. Uh, I am a trusting person. I don't like to haggle. I like to just give uh, people what they ask for for things, and that ends up biting me uh, too often. This week, in fact, we bought a new washing machine. Uh, the seller had five-star reviews on Facebook. All, you know, it looked great. Um, he guaranteed it, and then we bring it home, and the first wash, it's broken. So appearances can be deceiving. This also happens in very serious things, right? We've all seen marriages that we assumed from the outside were perfect, and then they blow up. We have assumed that a friendship would be lifelong, that we could count on this person for the rest of our days, and it breaks down. We have assumed that our leaders are people of high character, especially our Christian leaders, only to find out that they were the furthest thing from that. Appearances can be deceiving. And I'm sure that if we took a few minutes here that all of you could stop and think about countless times when you have been duped or disappointed or even wounded by this reality in our broken world. The disconnect between what things appear and what they are in reality is frustrating. But I also think it's the case that if you took a few minutes to think about this truth, you would realize that you yourself have been the source or the cause of this disappointment or wounding or hurt for others. Because the truth is, for each of us, even at our very best moments, there's a discrepancy between our aspirations or ideals of ourselves and the reality. There's a distance between the outside that we project to the world via social media, via friend groups, uh, via even our families, and the inside. And that distance and that discrepancy is oftentimes greater than any of us would care to admit. It even happens in here, right? We gather on Sunday mornings. 
We go through the process, we worship, we, we, we pray the liturgy, we sing the songs. Outside of Sundays, we may uh, be committed to acts of service. We may go to community group. And yet inside, it looks very different than our external projections. This is what the prophets condemn in the Old Testament. When it speaks of the people of Israel and says that outside they honor me. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus quotes that as well. But Jesus also calls the Pharisees in the Gospels whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside you are dead men's bones, Jesus says. Appearances can be deceiving. And as we have thought about this discrepancy uh, between the appearance of things and the substance of things, the internal versus the external, it has actually caused us here at the cathedral to ask some serious questions about who we are and what we're called to do and be. We've looked not over the past year, not just at the external reality of our church, which is good, right? It's beautiful, except for the scaffolding, I guess. But it's a nice place. You're nice people for the most part. That's attractive. But we've asked the question, not just what has attracted our people to our church, but we've asked the deeper question of what kind of people are we producing once they get here? And we used to say about our kind of core mission, core identity as a church, that we are being the heart of God for the heart of Charleston. You've all heard Pete or me say that countless times, I'm sure. And that's good. That was something that is good and it, it served us well, I would say, for the last several years. But this shift in thinking about the what we're attracting to what we're producing has shifted some language for us internally that you'll be hearing more externally. And that is that we now say that we are cultivating Christ's likeness for the common good. We are cultivating Christ's likeness in our common life. I didn't say it right the first time. Do you catch the difference in that? Being the heart of God to cultivating Christ-likeness. There's a lot of similarities, but the shift is uh, an ontological word, something that just is, right? Being to something that is an active verb, doing, cultivating. And that means, in essence, that we are working together as the cathedral church to look like Jesus. Very simple, we're working together to look like Jesus in ourselves, in our households, in this church, so that as we go from here, as we scatter from here, that we are Christ's likeness, Christ's presence in our neighborhoods and in our schools, in our places of work, on our streets. We're Christ's likeness. And so, as we have been discussing over the last several weeks about what it looks like to lean into this truth, to emphasize this, so that you uh, will, are sick of, us hear, sick of hearing this from us, we talked about changing our preaching series. We generally preach um, throughout most of the year on something called a lectionary, which is just appointed readings throughout the year that, that follow the life um, and redemption of Jesus. But most of the time in the summers, we kind of pick a series or a, a book or a theme. Last summer, we preached 1 Corinthians. Some of you remember that. A couple summers ago, we did 1 Peter. We've done Nehemiah. We've done Exodus. We've done Romans. But we decided because of this theme of Christ-likeness, we wanted this summer to explore the life of King David in 1 and 2 Samuel. David is spoken of in, uh, before he's even made king in chapter 13 as a man after God's heart. You've probably heard that. A man after God's heart. Which sounds a lot like Christ-likeness, right? It means that David is a man that was after God's heart, who, who looked like, who, who embodied, who cultivated God's character 
in his life. And he expressed that. And so our hope is that as we look to the life of David, we will see Christ's likeness in both his successes when he did exhibit that, but also his failures. And more importantly, we want to see together David's greater son, the promised one, the Messiah who would come and sit upon the throne of David, Jesus Christ. And as we do these things, our hope is that this summer we can learn what it means to be a people and a church that are after God's heart, a people cultivating Christ's likeness. So with all that said, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab a pew Bible. That's on page 238 of your pew Bibles. And so as you do that, I want to catch you up because we're starting in chapter 16. So we've missed a whole half of a book. And the reason is that the first half of Samuel, David is not the main character. For 15 chapters, it is about, not about David, but about a man named Samuel. In chapter one, we meet Samuel's mother, who is a woman named Hannah. And Hannah is in the house of the Lord. And she's crying out to the Lord because she is barren. This was a significant thing for a woman in the ancient Near East to not have children, not have progeny. It brought shame to her. And so she's crying out to the Lord saying, please, Lord, give me a son. The priest Eli comes in and and sees her and is not sure what's happening. He, He assumes that she's probably drunk. But she says, no, I'm just distraught. I'm crying out to the Lord for a child. And he says, woman, your, your request has been granted by the Lord. And so then she writes this psalm. She sings a psalm in the second chapter that actually we see come again in Luke's gospel. Whenever Mary sings a song, she draws heavily on Hannah's song. And in Hannah's song, she talks about this great reversal that God has brought about, that he has exalted the lowly and cast down the mighty. That appearances can be deceiving. And that is a theme that we see again and again in this book of Samuel. So Samuel is born, he is dedicated to the Lord, he's raised in the house of the Lord, and he will grow to become a prophet, and not just a prophet, but the last judge of Israel. And Samuel comes into the scene out of a dark time for Israel. If if you're familiar at all with the book of Judges, there's this cycle that Israel goes through where their things are good, and then they forget the Lord. And so then they are oppressed by their enemies. And so then in this oppression, they cry out to the Lord. The Lord raises up a judge, puts his spirit on this judge. The judge defeats their enemies, and then things are good. And then they forget the Lord. And then just the cycle happens again and again and again. So we're in one of those cycles right now. Israel's being oppressed by the Philistines. They've just been beaten in battle. The ark, the very sign of God's presence, has been taken from them. And so in response, in chapter 8, Samuel is old, and the people of Israel say, we don't want a judge anymore. We want a king like the other nations around us. We want a king. They demand it. And up to this point, God had been their king, right? He had appointed judges, but ultimately God was the king of the people of Israel. And Samuel and the Lord both say that God has been rejected. They've rejected God as their king in order to be like other nations. And yet, despite this rejection, God does not abandon them. He grants them their request. And he says, let let it be so. And so... If you were going to embark on a king search in the ancient Near East, what characteristics do you think you might be looking for? Do you think you would care if the candidate in question was a fan of or a writer of poetry? Probably not. 
Would you care if he was uh, especially attuned to the needs of livestock? Would you care if he was uh, particularly pious or holy? Maybe a little bit, because you might get some extra favor from the gods, but that would not be at the top of the list. Would you care if he was musical, if he played the lyre, the harp? No, what do you care about? Is he big and can he fight? Can our king beat up your king? Is he someone who strikes fear in the hearts of our enemies? That's all you care about. It's really a, a kind of a short job requirement. And so if that's what you're looking for, then you get good news in the book of Samuel, chapter nine. It says that this man Saul, the son of Kish, was taller by a shoulder length than any other person in the land. And not only that, he was the best looking person. He looks the part, he's tall, he's handsome, he is a winner. And so he is the one who is chosen by Samuel and anointed king. The people ratify it quickly. But there's only one problem. If you've read the text, you know that though Saul looks the part, he does not act the part. His external appearance is not the same as his internal fortitude. He appears as this tall, handsome warrior king. If he were uh, auditioning for the NFL draft, he would pass the eyeball test, if you're familiar with that. They parade these giant men in front of you and they say, man, well, he's 6'7 and 325 and runs the 40 and 4'6, passes the eyeball test. But he's not a gamer, right? That happens every year in the draft. People are overrated by what they look like. So that's Saul. But the reality is that though Saul appears to be this tall, handsome warrior king, he's actually fearful, he's foolish, and he's disobedient. And we get a sense of this at the very moment when he is chosen to be king. He's anointed, and the people are ratifying this, this anointing and wanting to celebrate him, and they say, where's Saul? And he's hiding in the luggage. Does not bode well for his rule. A couple chapters later, Saul is going to battle with the Philistines in which he's had some initial success. And he's waiting for the Lord's blessing, Samuel to come and offer a sacrifice. And he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting. And the people start to kind of dissipate from under his leadership. And so he says, I'm taking matters in my own hands. I'm going to offer the sacrifice. And as soon as he does, Samuel walks up and says, what have you done? You are not a priest. You are not a prophet. You're out of step. Even in the midst of victory, Saul is disobedient to the Lord. He does not finish the the job that the Lord has given him to wipe out the Amalekites who have oppressed Israel for a long time. And he fails to do this. Saul looked like the perfect king, but he is ultimately rejected. Appearances can be deceiving. And we read in the last verse, just before we read, you can look at it. The very last verse of chapter 15 says, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. That's the end of Saul, or at least the end of his time with the Lord's favor. And so chapter 16, we finally come to this anointing of David. The Lord sends Samuel to anoint a man who we've heard two chapters before is after his own heart. 16 verse one, the Lord says, how long will you grieve over Saul? Fill your horn with oil. That was common in the ancient Near East as a, as a tool for uh, carrying oil or beverages with you. He says, go. 
Go to Jesse's house. The Lord, I myself, he says, have provided a king. Literally, he says, I have seen to it. I have seen a king in Jesse's house. Samuel's afraid of this because clearly there's been a break in relationship with him and Saul. And he says, how can I go? What if he senses a plot to take his kingdom, to undermine his rule? And the Lord says, go and say that you are sacrificing to the Lord at Bethlehem. And so he goes, he goes to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse. And we just heard it read, Jesse's sons, beginning with Eliab, pass before him. Man, Eliab has got it all. He passes the eyeball test, right? He's tall, he's good looking. And Samuel says in his heart, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And the Lord says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his height, for I have rejected him. Samuel assumes because the outside looks good, that he will be a good king, that surely he's the one that God has called to be king. This becomes a theme in the first half of Samuel. People continually look at the appearance. They look at the external, and they are deceived by that. They're disappointed by that, by that person's failure, by that person's sin. But the Lord speaks to Samuel And says this, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man, he says, looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks to the heart. People look to the external. Because that's all we can look to, right? But God sees beyond that. He sees to the core of who we are. In the Hebrew, this idea of heart is not just emotions as we would understand it. It's your gut. It's the essence, the center of who a person is, their mind, their will, and their emotions. That is what the Lord looks at. He is not deceived by appearances. So the text continues. Jesse has all uh, seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and the Lord does not choose any of them. And so he asks, he, he says, hey, I was told there would be a son here that is gonna be king. Are these all of them? And Jesse says, there remains yet the youngest. And behold, he is with the sheep, tending the sheep. Samuel says, send for him. We will not sit down to, to celebrate this feast until he has passed before me. David walks in. The text does say that David is ruddy, that he's handsome, that he has beautiful eyes. So he does have that going for him. But he's the youngest. That could mean uh, Jesse saying that he's the smallest. He's probably just 11 or 12. He's unimpressive physically. And yet this is who the Lord has chosen to be his king. He tells Samuel, arise, anoint him. To which Samuel did right in the midst of his brothers, the ones who'd all passed before him, who all assumed that they would be the one. David, the youngest, the smallest, the unimpressive is anointed right there in the midst. And it says that as they do that, that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David and remained with him from that moment forward. That's a, a, a break from what we, the pattern we've seen in Judges, right? The spirit would come on to people like Samson and allow him to do these amazing feats and then the spirit would depart. Yet here we see that the spirit, God's spirit, comes upon David and remains with him. Despite appearances, the Lord has seen a king for himself chosen a king for himself, anointed a king for himself. The people had chosen Saul, right? The one who was head and shoulders above everyone else. But the Lord has chosen David, the unimpressive one who's out in the field, 
tending to the lambs. So we've covered a lot this morning, a lot of context, especially if you're unfamiliar with it. It's a lot of new things to process. But the question that we come to now is what does this mean for me? What does it mean for us? What do we take from this? First thing is that God sees your heart. God sees our hearts. Past all the appearances, past all the height, past all the things that would have been impressive to ancient Near Eastern kings, God sets all those aside and sees David's heart and finds in him someone who is after his own heart. And this notion, this theme of God seeing is a, a theme in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew Bible, God sees people who are unseen by others. God sees barren mothers like Sarai, like Rachel, like Samuel's mother, Hannah. God sees oppressed people like Israel when they are enslaved in Egypt and crying out for deliverance. God sees them. He hears them. He comes down to deliver them. God sees his people when they are oppressed by the Philistines. Across the Old Testament, God sees the destitute, the outcast, the widow, the orphan, the alien, the sojourner. God sees those people and repeats it again and again and again. If you don't believe me, read through the prophets. God is the one who sees them, who takes up their cause. He sees the unseen. The first person who names God in the Old Testament in Genesis 16 is a woman named Hagar. She names God. She's a single mother. She's been unjustly thrown out of her home. She's alone with no food, no one to care for her, no one to protect her. And God comes to her. He sees her. And she says, you are El Rai. You are the God who sees me. So aside from appearances, those of you who have felt overlooked, felt unseen, God sees you. He sees what you've gone through. He sees the pain, the wounding that no one else has seen. He sees you. He sees your heart. This is good. But also, God sees our hearts. If you are comforted by the fact that God sees you, good, but you should also be a little bit troubled by the fact that God sees you, right? God sees your heart. And if we're honest, even in the midst of worship, there are some rough things going on in our hearts. Some terrible things. Some things that we would not want anyone in the world to find out about. The prophet Jeremiah has said that the heart is deceitful above all things. It's beyond a cure. Who can understand it? So when God sees us, when he sees our hearts, he sees our jealousy, our longing after what we do not have and what others have. He sees our lust for someone that we cannot have that someone else has. He sees our desires for power and possession, for control. He sees your angerness. He sees your bitterness. He sees your wrath. He cursed people in your heart. They cut you off in traffic or abandon you, or fail you. He sees all those things, even when you're in church, friends. Even when you are sharing the peace, calling one another brother and sister, he sees those things. Appearances can be deceiving, but the good news, friends, is that unlike Saul, who was rejected because his heart was not after God's, because there was a discrepancy between what he 
projected and what he actually was. The state of our hearts does not necessarily lead to our rejection. But if we are honest and if we offer up our hearts to the Lord, we are not rejected. We are accepted. We are embraced. We are anointed as with oil of the Holy Spirit. We are offered the gift of Jesus, who is the the only truly whole person, the only person who the outside is perfectly matched to the inside. Pure in heart, pure in actions, perfect in his service of God. And Jesus offers us his righteousness for our sinfulness. He offers us his cleansing for our filthiness. He offers us his power in the midst of our failure. Jesus sees us. He sees all of us, everything that we are and everything that we are not. And despite all our deceptive appearances, all the way that we try to, to deceive others or even deceive ourselves, he loves us in the midst of that. And as we encounter that again and again and again, friends, we are transformed. That is what the gospel does. It transforms our hearts. We are loved into loving. As the great theologian Fred Rogers says, Or if you prefer someone a bit older, Martin Luther says, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. We are transformed as we see again and again and again the love of God, loving the unlovely in order to make them lovely. And it's only through knowing this love, friends, that we can cultivate hearts that are after God, hearts that are Christ-like, not just in appearance, but in reality. Amen.